0: Welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word.
1: Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition, I want to make our listening audience aware of some articles that I have written. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com, that's one word, jimandrewsbooks.com, you will discover there are some articles that i produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. I'm just happy to share them with you for whatever benefit they may have. We continue our exposition of the epistle to the Hebrews. We come today to chapter 6, but we need to back up and review the end of chapter 5 in order to properly connect the logic. Following the nuance of Dr. William Lane and his interpretation at the end of the last chapter, I will give you a paraphrase that I think he supports and I agree with. Brothers, it's hard to talk to you about these things, because your ears are so unattuned to the Word of God. I feel I have to restrict myself to giving you milk instead of feeding you meat. I mean, milk is a diet for spiritual babies. The solid stuff is for those who welcome it and use it and have mature discernment, spiritual discernment, because of it. Is that really the way you want it? Do I really have to minister to you on that level? So it is here. The author's tone is not really, oh my. Now we have to start all over again and build your faith from the ground up. I agree with Dr. Lane. The author's tone and intent is more in the vein of, shame on you people. You people should be more advanced in the faith and in your spiritual discernment than you are. Something many a pastor could say to Christian people today. Shame on you that you resist anything but baby food shame on you that you are so undiscerning in matters of righteousness. More is expected of you. As now the author transitions to chapter 6, one of the most famous and controversial openings in the New Testament, the author is saying, now I'm not going to pamper you. I think if you will just open your ears, you are capable of better digestion than that if you will just put your spiritual mind to it and get your hearts in it. So, this we shall do, meaning not baby talk, but mature talk, if God permits, that is, if the Lord sees fit to help you over the hump of this process. Understanding that total nuance, beginning with chapter 5, verse 11, into chapter 6, I believe that's crucial here. If we are to understand why the author proceeds despite their regression, their spiritual regression, to teach them meaty truth in the next chapters. So he starts out chapter 6, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, foundation of instruction about washing and laying on of hands, and the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. And this we shall do, if God permits. In moving from chapter 5 to chapter 6, let us remind ourselves of an important surface fact. I want to talk first about the fact, and then I'll get around to the importance of noting the fact. The fact is, it was not the biblical writers themselves who originally chopped the contents of their documents into chapters and verses. Those internal divisions were created much later, around the 15th century, and that was helpful in most cases. Made it a lot easier for scholars and lay readers to find our way around in the Bible. On occasion, however, and you probably already know this, the divisions blurred topical connections. Thus, they created an appearance of a new departure when there is none. And so sometimes this gives us a false sense of virgin territory when, in fact, The subject matter is continuous and logically intimate, as in this case. The last section of chapter 5 and the first verses of chapter 6 are a logical unit. And if we know that, we can't help be surprised when the author at the beginning of chapter 6 announces an intention diametrically opposite of what his material at the end of chapter 5 would expect us to look for. We would naturally expect him, based on that material, to say, Okay, I need to make a U-turn here, I need to back up, and I need to bring you folk up to speed because you just need milk. But rather, somewhat shockingly, he says, therefore, I'm pushing on, God helping me. I mean, at the end of chapter 5, he had made such a huge point of their dullness of hearing, of their spiritual immaturity, both in terms of religious understanding and in terms of their moral discernment. By the way, the two are always intimately connected. So why, we're bound to ask, would he forge ahead when we would expect him to say, as I mentioned? So i got to back up to the Old Testament rudiments. i got to go back to the foundations concerning Christ found there. And I'm going to have to fill in all the blanks all over again. I believe, if I may amplify his logic, the author is saying something like this. Look, I just have a sense in your particular case that I should not pander to your spiritual sluggishness but I believe I should push ahead and trust God to help me overcome your hearing problem. So, I'm not going to go back to the ABCs. That is, I'm not going to go back to the elementary teachings of Judaism. I'm not going to try to bring you up to speed. I'm going to forge ahead on Christian premises that you have already embraced, and I believe that God will help the truth somehow find and stick to the flypaper. Well, if I'm correct about that, His thinking here brings to mind the logic behind what the Apostle Paul advised his protege, Timothy. That was in the second epistle of Timothy, chapter 4, verse 3, when he strongly admonished Timothy, referred to this before, Preach the word in season and out of season. Out of season is a metaphor for those times when, for whatever reason, ears are not really open and receptive to the truth as in the past. That's the case here with these spiritually sluggish Hebrew Christians, and these sluggish Hebrew Christians are parallel with so many in the same boat today. Paul therefore implores Timothy in Second Timothy to preach the word when it is out of season. Why? For that circumstance on the face of it would seem to call for a change of menu, wouldn't it? At least that's the thinking of many today when the preaching of the word seems out of season. Just give them music, just give them drama, just give them light stuff. Let's just talk about marriage and the family. And I don't mean it's wrong to talk about marriage and the family, but some just get their buttons stuck there. Let's talk about navel-gazing themes. No, Paul understood that ironically, the one cure for dull ears, if there is a cure, is a steady drumbeat of the Word. That's been the philosophy of my whole ministry. That very thought, I suspect, lay behind the author's logic here in Hebrews chapter 6. He knows the best way to fix this problem is not to surrender to it, not to give in to it, and to feed them on a steady diet of traditional Jewish verities. But in effect, the best remedy is to push them, to force feed them, as it were, on the deeper and richer truths hidden in the person and work of Christ. The word will have that effect, though he does not mention this of revitalizing them spiritually, or it will repel them and make them show their true colors. Either way, it will serve its true purpose, and God's word will not return to him void. In passing, our minds naturally go back to 1 Corinthians 3. There, on the face of it, the Apostle Paul seemed to take a different approach to the immaturity of many in the Corinthian church. By his own admission Paul said he had to lighten the menu and feed them with milk, not meat, for they were not yet grown up enough in Christ to digest it. So the question naturally is raised, was Paul wrong in his approach to the Corinthians? Was bound to ask? No, not at all. The two situations, though similar on the surface, are different in this respect. In the case of the Corinthians, they were simply too immature to digest meteor truths of divine revelation. Their hang-up, the Corinthians I mean, wasn't so much that they had become dull of hearing. As in this case, their problem was they were deficient in their capacity. So it is a matter of different strokes for different folks. Let me illustrate. I remember in high school, I hated math, despised it, boring to the max. Now the problem was not that I could not comprehend it. I was never slow. But at that point in my life, mathematics seemed so utterly alien to any future plans for my life. It seemed so irrelevant to any work I ever planned to do. that, frankly, it was a monumental challenge to bring my mind to the work and focus on the subject at hand. Math had no more interest to me in those days than cross-stitching or basket weaving. Had I seen at the time that it was germane to anything important to me, well, I could have summoned the concentration to excel. So, you see, it wasn't, in my case, a matter of capacity. It was a matter of seeming irrelevancy. Simplifying math, in my case, would not have helped. My problem was not one of capacity, I repeat, but it just didn't seem germane to the life I expected to lead. On the other hand, for the average elementary student, though natively bright. High school math is water a little too deep, so they are introduced to simpler math appropriate to their stage of intellectual development. In their case, it is a matter of capacity, and appropriately teachers start them out on the milk of math, not the meat. There, I believe, is the difference between Paul's approach to the Corinthians, people who did not have the capacity, people not mature enough yet to digest the meat, and the approach of our writer to these Hebrew Christians, who had the capacity, but they had just regressed and become sluggish. Too sluggish to even try to digest meat. A milk diet would only enable them to continue a bad habit. So, in expectation of God's help, this author says, This may not be easy, but newsflash, I'm serving meat, for therein lays the best cure for your condition. The specific teaching meaty teaching that he has in mind, the one most relevant to the fault line in their faith, is, as indicated in Hebrews 5.13, was the teaching about the high priestly office of Jesus Christ, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. You see, if they could grasp this truth, that Jesus Christ was a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood, it's theological ramifications and other truths tangential to it, well, then these Hebrew believers would get what they so desperately needed to see. And what was that? They needed to see, they needed to grasp to understand the planned obsolescence of the Old Covenant, the outdatedness of its institutions, the outdatedness of its Aaronic priesthood, and its ceremonial rituals. They were right for their time, but that time was no longer right. That is, they would then grasp that all the Old Testament way of worship, to which some of them are tempted to retreat, they would grasp that it had been superseded. And if they could see that, they would then enter into the full assurance of their faith in Jesus Christ. There would be no more halting between two religious paths, that is, between Christ and Christianity and Moses and traditional Judaism. And that's where some of them were. They were vacillating to some degree between those two worlds. They were tempted to draw back to the familiar and far more culturally comfortable and less perilous path of traditional Judaism than taking up their cross and following after Christ, whatever the cost. Some were ambivalent. They had become spiritually and morally careless. And consequently, for some time had not had ears as ready for the truth as they should have, and were in no way ready to be teachers, as they should have. But here they were, still needing instruction themselves about matters they should already know. I know a lot of contemporary Christians just like that. F.F. F. Bruce makes, I think, a very insightful point that we're apt to overlook here in chapter 6. It's this. For a Gentile to reverse field and turn back to paganism was a clear case of apostasy. It was a manifest sign of rank unbelief, and it would be a case of temporary false faith. However, Bruce notes, for a pious Jew to back off his alignment with Jesus as the Messiah and retreat back into the revealed religion of the Old Testament, ah, that would not have struck a Hebrew Christian as the apostasy it really would have been. For unlike a Gentile turned back to pagan idols, the Jew perhaps would simply see himself as withdrawing into the revealed and certified religion of the Old Covenant. What they may not have fully gotten was that what had been superseded in divine revelation now must be allowed to recede. To go back was to go astray and to disobey God and reject his revelation. That's what they needed to see. In any case, our author now says in verse 1, we leave behind, we must leave behind the matter of the beginning of Christ, not laying again the foundation of repentance toward God and so forth. He's not saying that these teachings and the early church practices are not worth talking about. He's saying that these entry-level teachings and practices, they're not to be despised, but a believer should not be stranded at this level. Stranded in the sense of not comprehending anything richer or deeper concerning Christ than these rudimentary truths. Truths, by the way, which did not go too far beyond Judaism in its faith. For to be stranded on those truths, true as they may be, was to be stunted in growth and not much advanced beyond Judaism and understanding. As Bruce and others have noted, depending on what one meant by those expressions all pious Jews could endorse, in one way or another, all of those principles mentioned here. So that, I think, is what the writer is trying to say. Right now, folks, you are just barely in the doorway of the Christian faith. You are just barely removed from Judaism in your introduction to Christ. Now, look, it is high time to move on to Christian maturity, theologically and morally, It's our time not to keep our buttons stuck on the bare rudiments of the Christian faith and practice which are not too far in advance of Judaism. If I read this correctly, some of these Hebrew Christians were content with what one might call, if not a dehydrated, Christless Christianity, at least a Christ-liked brand just barely ahead of traditional Judaism. If I read the lines correctly some of these Hebrew Christians just kind of wanted to park there. They wanted to play both ends against the middle and not move out and on into, get this, radicalized Christianity, boldly embracing Christ. That's where the hits come. Well, the author of Hebrews will not countenance that. Those elementary teachings and practices are givens. None are to be despised. However, their faith needs to bulk up in its muscle. And for that, they need more substance. As for their faith in Jesus as the Christ, there can be no retreat from that ground. Let them all understand the implications of rejecting Him. That is where the author now goes in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4. And here we have another huge, heavy-duty warning about the danger of apostasy. Though, as I've emphasized several times, that's not the outcome our author expects as he will tell us later. But his warning is designed through the Spirit of God, to avert to him in any temptation in that direction. This passage we're about to look at has always been one of the most debated in the New Testament. For in the case of those who've once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and they put him to open shame. Those of the theological Arminian persuasion seize upon this passage and a few others to make the case that one can lose one's salvation. If you took the passage in isolation, you could see easily how those folk might arrive at their position. However, one must always interpret texts in context and in context is a broad principle that demands that one always interpret in any given biblical text in light of the total biblical context. In short, no text can mean what the rest of biblical teaching says it cannot mean. Ultimately, the Bible has one author, the Holy Spirit, and therefore it speaks with one voice. It does not contradict itself. Since we believe the New Testament is bountifully and emphatically clear elsewhere, clear that all those in Christ are eternally secure in Christ. And since we believe that the New Testament clearly and emphatically teaches the perseverance of the saints, meaning that every genuine child of God continues in the faith unto the end, well, this view that we can lose our salvation is easily disposed of as an interpretive option. Besides, I would add, Arminians believe in an on-again, off-again, ad nauseum scheme of salvation, which this text rejects, for it teaches that those who once apostasize are irretrievably lost forever. There are others who believe that these verses use language that can only describe genuine believers. But knowing that no child of God can reject Christ and again be lost, they opt for an interpretation that views this language as hypothetical. That is, in their view, if such a person were to turn his back on Christ, what's described here would be the outcome, but of course that can't happen. Well, not only does this view put an unnatural strain on the plain language, but it's also impertinent. If it couldn't happen, the whole warning loses all of its force. It's much like saying if after all the driving training you've had, all the bloody documentaries you've seen to warn you against drunk driving, and you still throw all that behind you and go out and drive drunk, you will eventually get killed or seriously injured. Except that won't really happen to one who's been to driving school and seen all the bloody stuff about car wrecks when people drive drunk. So that's a force-fit interpretation, in my view, designed simply to evade the Arminian position. They're backed into this interpretive corner because of a faulty assumption about the language of the text. They wrongly assume, I believe, that the language of verse 4, in the case of those who have been once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, that language, they think, can only describe the experiences of a genuine believer. That, I hold, is not the case at all. The author proceeds to warn his readers that having confessed Jesus as the Christ and experienced what they have, were they to turn away from him at last, it would be impossible later to restore them. Such a move would be eternally fatal. Now let's back up and consider the descriptors of those who might apostatize. Once enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Observe that all those expressions are metaphors. My point is, the church at this early period had not developed much in the way of technical theological language, not the kind we possess today. So the same terminology does not necessarily have the same meaning for everyone. So understanding that fact, that this language is metaphorical, it's not technical terminology. There's a way of understanding this language string so that it describes a certain kind of person who has been up close and personal with the Spirit and the power of God, and yet in the end proves not to be a believer after all. Secondly, I strongly suspect that the expressions here are not intended to indicate entirely discrete experiences, but they've overlap considerably, so that each serves in some way to indicate what's meant by the others. This I think is especially important when we get to the clause made partakers of the Holy Spirit. That's an experience more clearly defined by the other experiential descriptions surrounding it. My view is very much in accord with that of F.F. F. Bruce, the famed British scholar, though I arrived at my position independently rather than borrowed it. Bruce points out that we're enlightened was used among Christians in Rome in the second century to designate baptism. But we don't have to hang our hats on that association. That expression, we're enlightened, need me nothing more than people who had at some point seen the light intellectually and acknowledged the truth of the gospel and were baptized as Christians. That business tasted of the heavenly gift, though Bruce thinks this may refer to participation in the Lord's table. This, too, does not need to mean anything more than to have been up close to the blessings of Christ in such a way that what was in the cup, so to speak, spilled over into the saucer. And having become a partaker of the Holy Spirit, we do not have to understand this expression technically. It need mean nothing more than having been intimately exposed to and having benefited from the operations, the gifts, and manifestations of the Spirit. Well, folks, we'll have to come back to this in our next study. God bless you, and have a wonderful day.
0: The Final Word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word, 4565 Carmen Drive, Lake Oswego, Oregon 97035. Our email address is info at the Our phone number is 503-699-9840. If this program has ministered to you, tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach. Be sure. Just be sure the word isn't left there.